Hi, everyone. This episode is coming out a little late because, well, Earth Day is this week, and I wanted to release the episode closer to Thursday, April 22nd, which is when Earth Day is happening. In keeping with that, my guest, Dr. Gary Shapiro, and I will be talking about orangutans, the not-for-profit he co-founded with his wife, and how becoming aware and researching the nuances of different ecological problems we are facing is something we can all commit to on this Earth Day 2021. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. A few weeks ago, my guest Nathaniel Popkin talked about the dissonance he experienced on his first Earth Day. And with Earth Day coming up on Thursday, I thought it would be good to talk about it a little bit. The first Earth Day was in 1970. The impact of that day was so profound that it propelled legislation forward and started a movement where the focus was on the environment and raising the consciousness of people to the negative impacts we as humans were having on the earth. Fast forward 51 years later, and not much has changed. Coal is being used still to power our electricity. Pollution is a constant problem. Plastic waste is drowning other species. We've lost species. Deforestation is accelerating. Climate change is a pressing critical issue. And the mountains of discarded PPE that is now also filling up our oceans in response to a pandemic that has occurred precisely because of our treatment of the earth. It is dire, but there are pockets of hope and there are people working hard to make a difference. My guest, Dr. Gary Shapiro, is one of those people. His early experiences in the forests of Indonesia studying orangutans led to a lifetime of working to change their fate. Him and his wife created the Orangutan Republic Foundation in 2004. And it's truly doing incredible work. Not only are they working to protect orangutans, but perhaps the greatest impact is in the community of people living around and with orangutans. Their scholarship program is training the next generation of local conservation scientists. They're working in the communities, creating a pathway forward, helping all of the persons of the forest, orangutan and human. I'm really delighted to have Dr. Gary Shapiro on the show. I'm so excited. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gary Shapiro. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, Jennifer. Nice to be here. 
You know, there is so much for us to talk about because you have been involved with orangutans for a really long time and you've done a lot of different things and and they are facing some of the same threats today that they were when you started working with them. Um, but one of the things I always like to ask my guests when we start is how do you connect with nature? What does that look like for you? Well, um it's uh it's been a long process obviously i've since a child i've i've enjoyed being in the outdoors back in the days when kids were allowed to run around you know and not worry about uh you know strangers as much you know you could go down to the creek and i used to love doing that and exploring nature as a child and um as i as i got older i found myself feeling connected to animals and i remember going to some um some field in in upper in northern california visiting a friend and having conversations with frogs you know on a pond in the evening i would i would make the ribbit sound and they would answer back and we would just go back and forth and i felt this kind of you know connection at that level um and as i got older you know i i, I found myself enamored with marine biology and um and uh, thinking I would become a marine biologist. Uh, I, I loved Jacques Cousteau and followed his exploits and saw myself as going down that path. And of course that did not happen. Uh, <laughs> I found myself taking a detour uh, when I went from junior college to finishing up my four year uh, you know, degree and uh, as a zoologist, um, moving towards primates and um, found, you know, when I worked on my master's degree, I was with, with an orangutan at the Fresno City Zoo. And all of that kind of just kept moving forward uh, to the, the place that I, be, you know, when I got my, my PhD, it was uh, communicating with, with orangutans using sign language and teaching them signs. I look more at the, the sign learning part of it than the really um, whether it was language or not language because that that's a more philosophical issue but at the time it was uh, it was really um, you know fabulous for me you know to be the first person to really go into any animal's environment and teach them sign language and at that time nobody had really worked with orangutans to any great degree Right. You know, chimpanzees, and of course we know about Coco, the gorilla, but nobody had really spent a great deal of time with orangutans. Um, so that to me was like a great opportunity, and I, I just jumped at it. Now, how did you how did you kind of zero in on? Uh, I mean, I know you've done some work on on um, you know freshwater ecology. So how did you how did you end up? working with an orangutan at, at the zoo, teaching them sign language or studying, you know, communication in that way. How did that happen? Yeah, well, I was I was fortunate. You know, I was taking um, uh, animal behavior class from a professor, uh, Dick Haas, who uh, it, it had a good relationship with the Fresno City Zoo at the time. And in fact, you know, at that time, there was an emphasis on interdisciplinary studies. Um, and so working across campus with a zoo, for example, or going, you know, to another department. And, you know, because I was interested in, and I had actually met um, the gardeners, Alan and Beatrice Gardner, back when I was into marine biology at the uh, Sierra College outside of 
uh, Sacramento, California, up in Rockland, California. I had actually met Jane Goodall earlier that day, picked her up at the airport, took her to her hotel room. She picked up the phone and called the gardeners who had worked, who had done the initial work with Washoe, mm-hmm. the sign of chimpanzee. Right. And and asked them, invited them to come from Reno to the campus uh, at Sierra College for her lecture that night. Wow. So here I was sitting next to Jane as she's talking to the gardeners. And that night I sat next to, uh, you know, uh, uh, Alan Gardner, that's his name. Um, And in the front row, as Jane was giving her talk, little did I know that years later I would be contacting him and asking him whether I should use sign language or some other artificial language to work with this orangutan at the Fresno City Zoo. Wow. I had chosen this project for whatever reason. I was doing other studies too at Fresno. I was actually doing work on biofeedback um, uh, using using techniques of the day. I, I was interested in the brain as well. So um, doing this work uh, with, with, with the orangutan at the zoo, and her name was, was Azak. Uh, that was the juvenile orangutan's name. I, the gardener said you should use David Premax technique, which is using plastic shapes as the symbols rather than sign language. For whatever reason, he felt that maybe you wouldn't get great results very quickly if you use sign language. And, and I took his advice. So I created a, a, my own plastic language using those little children's letters that you could buy with the magnets that you teach kids the ABCs. Right. But instead of the letters being, you know, standing for letters, they stood for words. Okay. So like a, a, a blue E would be, you know, some something like an orange or an apple or something. So I created this artificial language and uh, got into the cage with Azak you know, on a regular basis during um, like an 18 month period between 1973 and 1975. And that formed the basis of my master's thesis. And I was also pre-med, could not get into medical school. (laughs) Uh, The competition in California was too severe at the time. So I went off to Oklahoma to work with Roger Fouts, Oh. And Washoe, the orangutan, uh, the the chimpanzee, and so I shifted from orangutans to chimpanzees at the Institute for Primate Studies, and it was there, as I was working on my my doctoral study, and I was going to study the um, sign comprehension by a juvenile chimpanzee, and I worked with um, an a chimpanzee named Ali, and Ali happened to be Nim Chimpsky's. You heard of Nim the chimp? Yes. Half-brother. Oh, my goodness. So I worked with Nim's half-brother, Allie. Okay. In, in a study, and I was using, like, not just teaching or, or uh, using signs by by a person. I was actually doing videos. Not even videos. These were film loops. This is before video. And we are doing film loops of, of people making the sign. And the idea was to play the film loop to Ali and to see if he could decode it into okay. a series of, um, of, of signs like take the berry from the purse or uh, the, the food is under the chair or so you'd have object location and um, 
in action. And you would, you would see if he could decode that. Okay. So this because was sort of a comprehension done. test, basically. That was going to be my, that was going to be my dissertation, a comprehension study right. by signs of, by a chimpanzee. Now on um, July, I think it was 5th, 1977, I got a call from my professor, Roger Fouts, asking me if I would like to go to the jungles of Borneo to teach sign language to orangutans. And I'm going, what? <laughs> yeah, it turned out that uh, this woman, young woman at the time, Berute Galdikas, had uh, uh, met Roger at a at one of these um, uh, European castles where they had done a great ape conference sponsored by the Leakey Foundation. It was the first great ape conference done in like 73 or 75 or something. Um, anyway, so by 77... Berche was looking for somebody to come out to, to help run her camp. And also she wondered, she wanted to ask this one orangutan a question in sign language. He thought she, she would need to have somebody train Sugito uh, mm -hmm. about that. So um, I, I answered the call. I said yes, immediately to Roger. And a year later, I was chugging up the river um, to Camp Leakey. You know, this Blackwater River, just gorgeous, something out of like, you know, the African Queen, like the movie, you know, going up river in a slow boat. And but actually I was going up in a long boat. It was a fast speedboat. Um, and it was just an, an amazing, you know, first trip up the river, seeing what I saw, the monkeys and, um, you know, the, the wildlife along the way and then settling in for two years. Uh, at this remote post in the middle of the jungles of Borneo, of central Borneo. Wow. So I did that for two years and it was there. I did my, my original sign language work with a number of orangutans, including princess, who's my adopted orangutan daughter. That's what I, I like to call her. Right. And then of course she was one of four that formed the basis of my dissertation. And then of course I had the, uh, the most extraordinary uh, meetings and relations with um, uh, relationship with uh, with Rini, uh, an adult female free ranging orangutan across the river. So that was like that was my life out there at the time. This is incredible. And there's there's so many questions I have because um, there's there's so much wonderful so much that you said that's so wonderful to talk about. Um, one of the things that I'm curious about before we kind of dive into these special relationships that you had and what made them special to you and and and, and maybe even to them, um, how do you teach, just walk us through, how do you teach an orangutan sign language? Great question. You know, I, I call it psycho sculpting because you're like you're like you're like a sculptor, right? You take a piece of clay and you mold it. In fact, the technique is called molding, where you take the um, uh, student's hand, the student ape's hand, and you mold it in the right configuration that corresponds to that of the sign. You know, if you look at signs. Uh, there's actually a dictionary and that you can break it down just like we can spoken language into the phonemes. Uh, well, they have, um, uh, again, you have uh, the configuration of the hand, you have the movement and you have the position, the terminal position of where you, you move the hand. So for example, you could cup your hand, make it like a, a flat hand and touch the tips of your hand to your mouth uh, a couple of times. And that is the sign for food. And you, you start out by molding it 
and you reinforce with some food after you mold the hands and you touch the face, you know, the lips with the, 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 the fingertips. Then you give your student a little food. And of course, it's very general because it's food, right? Right. And of course, as you go more specific into the type of food, like banana or fruit or, you know, something like that, you will do the same thing. You will create the hand configuration and you associate it with the specific food. Okay. Is over this... time, uh, the, the, your student will form concepts of, of what those sign gestures represent. Yeah, you, so you can understand that connection. And of course... It, well, is, is that similar to how we teach human children sign language? Um, it can be. In fact, many of these techniques have been used to teach signs to children with uh, speaking problems language intervention therapy. So kids who may not pick up spoken language very quickly, you can actually use some of these techniques of molding their hands and getting them to um, learn how to communicate. Now, you know, human children eventually, of course, get very good at this and you don't have to mold them. You just imitate and they imitate you and they can learn it that way. Imitation is also another way that uh, the you know great apes can learn how to sign, but molding is perhaps the most effective way. Okay. Now, uh, around that same time, you mentioned you know other um, individuals, Washo, uh, uh, the chimpanzee, Coco, the gorilla, um, and I recall reading that Washu uh, was observed teaching other chimpanzees to sign. Right. right? So, so, did you ever see? orangutans that had learned to sign actually teach their offspring or other individuals by molding or in some other way to, to sign? You know, it'd be so great to, you know, if I could say yes, but I, I can't do that as a, as a uh, honest scientist because, you know, it just, I just haven't seen it. And of course I, I did not stay out there for, you know, after the first two years, uh, when I left, uh, I, I wasn't out there watching. So I didn't watch his princess say, for example, who who learned like 37 signs. Um, she could have perhaps done active molding. But um, my, my thinking is that many of the great apes, especially orangutans, learn through observation. Mm -hmm. more than they do through active, say, teaching of, by the parent. So they'll learn by um, watching the mother. And uh, I, I can't even tell you if, say, some of Princess's offspring had learned from her. Mm -hmm. Because who is going to be eliciting the sign from her? Again, you know, the reason why orangutans sign is because they're getting something out of it. In one sense, signing is like being used as, as a tool. Uh, to get something of interest. And one of the things that I, that I learned in doing, coming back in 1981 to do a, a test of this hypothesis was um, pairing up the, the, the objects that Princess had learned with in a pairwise comparison of how interested she was in the objects for those signs. And so what I, what I wanted to find out is to test the theory, do, do orangutans learn signs they're most interested in the object of those signs? Okay. And it turns out that's the case. When I did the pairwise comparison and I correlated that with her relearning of the sign after 
a year absence. The relearning was much faster for those signs that she was interested in the object. So, of course, she likes food signs. Sure. And so those were quickly relearned. Sure. When I went back to kind of re, re, retrain her because she was sloppy when I came back out there. <laughs> you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. Right. Well, it's, we it's do that with lots of languages, right? I mean, of course, of course. I mean, you know, my Italian is pretty, pretty darn sloppy. And uh, but, you know, my friend who's uh, fluent in Italian, yeah, I can usually get the point across. Yeah, um, yeah. And she tries to clean up my my communication by correcting me, uh, you know, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, OK. You know, I, I, <laughs> but but, you know, it's funny. I know a few individual uh, apes that sign. And one of them, um, his favorite sign was chase because he wanted yeah. you to chase him. He yeah, was yeah. super interested in that. And then um, there's another chimpanzee who is very, very, very fond of flavored chapstick. Uh-huh. And is constantly asking for it from anybody, yeah. any any human that she sees that is the first thing she signs um she'll put, she'll put the, her finger across her lips and, oh yeah uh, oh yeah that right, oh right. yes and okay. so so you know i'm curious right you you mentioned that princess was your adopted daughter orangutan yeah. that you think of her that way so it sounds like you had a pretty special relationship with her can you kind of do you feel comfortable sharing how that developed and, oh, and what impact that had on you yeah, well, you know, I up to that point, I had not had my own child. You know, I, I hadn't raised a, a child yet. I was like 27 years old. And, um, of course, my first time away from America and in this brand new culture, this brand new place that um, had some, uh, you know, really interesting challenges, intercultural challenges with the local people. And then... Um, I, you know, my job was to take care of these, these orangutans and, and, you know, I kept a diary, which is, is such a wonderful thing to have, because it just refresh my memory, go back and all these wonderful stories. So uh, I remember during the early days when I was there, I had gone to the um, uh, enclosure where we kept the, the youngsters for the night and, and keep them from their safety from the pigs and the, and the snakes. And um, inside this enclosure, there was princess and, I don't think I knew her name at the time, but I saw her sitting there and, you know, she came up to me and looked at me and, um, and I remember taking her out, uh, several days later for a walk and taking her up to a tree and she would climb the tree and she got all scared because she didn't know what to do when she was up there and she was crying and, uh, she eventually came back down and, um, and I, of course I put her back into the, um, safety enclosure, um, and then later, when I was ready to actually start this study, with uh, I wanted a, to do something comparable to Washoe and with Coco, to do a homeyard study with with a young orangutan. Okay, mm-hmm. and so I, I went over to the cage, the, the safety cage, and uh, went inside. I actually sat inside with all these orangutans, like like eight or nine of them, uh, and and Princess came right up to me. And she just jumped into my arms. So I knew she selected me. And uh, it was like, you know, it was really the best way to do it. You know, I didn't like look at them and say, I want this one right here. Princess chose me. So I, I took her out of the cage and brought her back home to the guest house where I lived. 
And so that became her home uh, during the duration of my time there. Mm -hmm. And she lived with me and she slept with me in the bed when we first started. And over time, uh, she I gave her her own room where she could go to. Um, but she really preferred to kind of stay with me. And it was one of those types of relationships that uh, was really so special. And, I, you know, I, I, I fondly ha I have such great, you know, fond memories of it, you know, taking taking princess down to the to the uh, river every day for a bath uh, we'd go swimming together we would also go into the forest on on treks you know together she's she riding on my back um we would stop and i would you know pick up a leaf or you know a flower and i would teach her the sign for it and you know keep track of all of this so i have i have the, like the princess diaries where i would keep track of all of the effort i made when i would teach her signs this is one of the things i did i i kept track um of all the effort i i made in teaching the signs uh to to princess and the other orangutans um thinking someday i would analyze all this data well you know up to now not a lot of the data has been analyzed. <laughs> I got to tell you, it's a lot of work going through all this stuff. Sure. Um, but, you know, maybe one of these days with, with some volunteer help and, you know, we can go through all of that. But that's right now, um, my effort is really into trying, trying to save orangutans and not to, you know, create another paper. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. what, what I did learn, though, was was enough to show that the princess, like, like, like the chimpanzees and the gorillas of Coco uh, could learn signs during the initial sign studies that we did and, and do so in a way that was quite comparable with a great deal of overlap in many of the signs. And it was, um, it just basically said that orangutans, you know, were comparable in their ability to learn and to use signs like the other great apes. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, so I think you, you touched on something that's really that I kind of want to, you know, dig into because, I mean, it's great to have done these studies and to find this out. And yeah. but but I'm wondering, you know, what was your main like, like I'm imagining because you paint such a, a wonderful picture of this relationship where you're going through the forest. And and I, I guess to give some context to the listeners, was was she an orphan? Why were were why were there orangutans there, um, sure. you know, it, at camp in that way? Um, just so people have sort of a context of of what was happening. Well, absolutely. Um, in at Camp Leakey, uh, Dr. Galdikos and myself were involved in the rehabilitation of ex-captive orangutans. So uh, under Indonesian law, it's illegal to own orangutans as pets, and it's illegal to harass them and to kill them and to, um, you know, to torture them. It's illegal, you know, that there's actual protections that, that were put into place by the Dutch during the colonial period. And these laws were carried on after Indonesia uh, received her independence. And so this whole problem, though, of people wanting to buy them because they were accessible, especially when forests were being cleared during the 60s and 70s for timber. And at that time, um, uh, you know, when when an orangutan was visible and that was a mother orangutan with a baby, uh, the illegal pet trade came into fruition with poachers being able to contact, you know, middlemen who could find somebody to purchase and then resell 
the baby. So there was this thriving um, illegal orangutan trade going on. Um, frequently, it was also gifts to high officials at the time. Um, we would frequently receive these orangutans uh, from you know, government officials, uh, particularly in the military. And um, we would give them the names of the officials. Uh, so we had orangutans like um, Sagito from like General Sagito or um, Sosuoyo from, you know, uh, I, I don't know if it was General Sosuoyo or Colonel, but these high officials who would give up their orangutans. So we would honor them by giving the animal the name of the, the person giving them up. And so we would have these these orangutans at Camp Leakey, who we were provisioning. And at the time, this is before we had the kind of modern protocols of reintroduction. And we were doing this kind of creating this on our own, figuring out how to give the orangutans a sense of belonging and uh, a sense of respect and giving them an opportunity to find their way back into the into the wild at their own pace. Mm-hmm. And so we, we were creating this... Um, this kind of society of bicultural orangutans. They were they felt very good with working with us. And at the same time, they were becoming adapted at finding food in the forest, the nearby forest. And so this was the model that we were using. And at the time when I came there, I thought what we could do is, is like um, intervene for a little limited period of time and to find out something about the cognition and learning abilities and, and sign language abilities of, of the orangutans uh, at Camp Leakey. And it was really um, an opportunity to give the orangutans the choice mm-hmm. of entering into this relationship. Now, yes, Princess, of course, jumped into my arms and she became one of my in one of my students, but there were others out there too, who were in the holding cages for their safety, who I also used in the study. I would take them out and give them uh, the sign training. And then of course, Rini was completely free ranging. free ranging. She was across the river. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was also a way to respectfully work with another species. Uh, outside of the classic laboratory or zoo environment and let them come to to the uh, the classroom on their own accord. So what I would do with, say, Rini, I would swim across the river and call her name and she would come down from the trees and sit down with me for up to an hour or more as I would mold her hands and go through the signing process. And it it was really... That was the first thing I did when I got out there, actually. It was before I met Princess or started the signing project project with her. I was working with this adult orangutan, and nobody had worked with an adult ape before, wow. whether it was a chimp or, 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 or gorilla. Because, you know, you don't go up to a great ape <laughs> that's an adult and, and have contact this way. It's sure. very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, they're very strong. And you've heard stories, horror stories, about chimpanzees tearing people apart. Absolutely. And orangutans are incredibly powerful and, they and they're, they're, they're not as sort of volatile That's true. Uh, um, as chimpanzees, but, you know, they're always known as, I think, the great escape artists. They're very patient mm-hmm. and watching and observing and they make a calculated move. Yep. This is my own observation. Um, and so you could be you could find yourself inadvertently in a dangerous situation 
at a much slower pace than say, you know, an immediate sort of, you know, aggressive confrontation with a chimpanzee, like an orangutan can kind of sneak up on you dangerously in terms of a grip or, you know, I remember one orangutan got a hold of me. I, and it, and I didn't even see it coming, you know, cause I was just kind of relaxed around him. And next mm-hmm. thing I know, he had a, a very strong grip and this was only a three-year-old orangutan. Yep of my shirt and I quickly became shirtless. Um, (laughs) That was my only solution was to get out of my shirt because if he got my hair or something and didn't feel like letting go, um, not even intentionally trying to cause me injury, they're just so strong that the possibility of injury is so high, um, you know, when you're in any kind of physical contact. So yeah, that's pretty remarkable that, you know, with an adult female, you were able to interact in that way. And so it's sort of fascinating to me how that even happened the first time. Yeah, well, you know, there's so much wrapped up to what you just said, to be impact in a way to kind of give it context and explanation. I mean, there's, you know, you know, in my situation, I think when you, when you were there, orangutans have a theory of mind. First of all, you should know that. I do they, know that. They know what you are thinking, or they can predict again, what you are thinking and your intentions. So you got to remember that as well. And this is something we see with the great apes, the theory of mind. Now, couple that with, again, their uh, being, you know, in a, captive situation. Uh, I truly believe uh, orangutans learn to resent their keepers, at least many of them. But some orangutans have good relations with some people. There's no question about that. They form very close attachments. But they know that the keeper goes home at the end of the day and has the freedom to walk around, whereas the orangutan is stuck where he or she is. Mm -hmm. And I believe they resent that. I believe there is there's a deep um, sense of of an unfairness. And we know about primates understanding fairness. There are a lot of great studies on oh, fairness. Yeah. They actually have a much studies. Yeah, they have a better yeah. sense of fairness than we do. And 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 you know, to your point, I think I would challenge any listener who I, I personally don't go to zoos. That's my own philosophy. Um, but when I have and I've seen, and you look in the eyes of a number of different species, but we're focusing today on orangutans and other great apes. There's a rage in there. There's a, and I think it stems from what you're saying, this resentment. There's an underlying sense of, you know, this isn't right. This yeah. is not okay. And, 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 and they harbor this. They harbor this for a long time. And I mean, for years. Um, and they and they actually will form um, uh, strategies to take revenge. So you know, getting you know their fair revenge is something that I have experienced over many years with orangutans when I lived out there, and I've seen it play out with other people. Right. Um, it, it is really fascinating at, at at a variety of levels. But going back to your original question, when I first went out there uh, as a young guy, you know who who had no fear um you know and it's it's kind of like strange because there's a lot of things i would not do today sure. <laughs> safety, <laughs> health and safety protocols you know amongst them of course of course but, um knowing that 
also that not only was Rini across the river, there were a, a number of other ex-captives uh, who, who had some bad reputations. If you read Galdikas's books, one, one was yes. uh, Gundul, uh, Gundul the orangutan, who, who, was, who would, uh, the story was that he uh, uh, physically assaulted in a sexual way one of the cooks at Camp Leakey. Yes, I remember reading that and going. Yeah, and so huh. he was there. He was there, but <laughs> right. he didn't look like like a really bad guy. He was um, at that time, I think, a sub adult. Yeah, male. He hadn't developed his cheek pads, and was was but wandering around, and would frequently come up to me when I was sitting with Rini, wanting to get closer. And I knew his intention. You know, he wanted to get close enough to do something. You know, mean to me. Right. Right. So I would I would pick up a stick and I would brandish it and I would kind of show who's boss here. Right. Absolutely. I had to to assert my my dominance to him and he would squeak like a little baby (laughs) doing fear. So I I knew he was in his place, but he was always getting closer and closer. And Rini would sit down because she was being treated like a queen. She was getting all this attention. Right. And, um, you know. As long as I was giving her things and and grooming her and showing her this attention, she felt very very special, and I never felt threatened by her. And um, when she did grab me, and if I felt like her grab was too strong, you, you learn a way to un um, attach yourself from the grip. There's a twist you can make to free yourself. And you learn that very quickly being around orangutans. (laughs) Yes. Cause I, I, I would have interactions with like Sistoyo who was on the campsite, who was such a sweetheart, one of my favorite orangutans. And she would grab me and hold on to me with her feet and her arms. (laughs) And I would have to free myself. And, um, so I, I respected the strength, sure. um, but because they were free ranging, they did not have that 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 burning um, uh, rage inside you talked about, mm-hmm. or they didn't feel like they they were being kept in a place they couldn't go to. They they were free, and that freedom made all the difference. I believe. A- absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look, I I always feel very honored when other animals, uh, wild animals choose to, uh, you know, either engage in my company. You know, sometimes we have to negotiate personal space boundaries. They might have a different idea of how close they can get with me, you know, where I'm comfortable too. Um, But, you know, something that you said really struck me with the theory of mind. So, and, and you described it very well, but it suggests to me that really you communicated for all the sign language that you were able to, you know, studies that you were able to do that, that, that really wasn't the primary form of communication you had right. with these orangutans. So talk to me a little bit about what you really think is the way that you communicated so well with them to develop these relationships and to have these connections? Well, that's a great question, you know, and everybody looks at sign language and they say, wow, that's so, that's so amazing that they can communicate like that because we wrap so much into our linguistics, right? But we know that nonverbal communication is much richer in, in communicating how we feel or how, you know, what our intentions are. Um, and we know this 
through observational studies, you know that, of course, you know, doing the work that you've done uh, with prairie dogs. Sure. You know, I mean, you don't have to, you know, have a conversation in language to know what they're all about. And the same is true with almost any other species. You, there's a, There's a whole... I think channel that is is available to us if we open our minds to it, um, and sometimes our hearts to it as well, because it does touch really deep into us, um, especially the emotional side of, of how they express themselves, because we are you know common kin. We we share this ancestry, and so the the emotions that we see ex, you know expressed by say princess when she cries that's not unlike a human child crying. Um, and when they're frustrated and they express their frustration, you, you, you understand that just by observing them. So there, there is that when you respect also the, the orangutan for being this majestic, um, free ranging animal with a sense of autonomy and self, uh, and you see them as a person and not as a thing, you, you really open up this, this greater channel of communication. And this is what we had at Camp Leakey. We, we didn't see them as orangutans, really. We saw them as their own identity, as their own individual. Yeah. And so I saw Sisoyo coming to sit down on on the deck of the guest house in the morning, knocking at the door, or or going up on the roof and tearing off the shingles trying to come in, you know, <laughs> they, whatever they did, I'd have to go and deal with Sisoy. I didn't see myself dealing with orangutans. I saw them as individuals with their own personality and their own personhood status. When you when you finally embrace that, it's really it opens up a greater line of communication and this respect that you have for them respect for their strength respect for their what their their feelings are and what their intentions are is really powerful absolutely and i think that's true you know so it's interesting both of us have you know been in the science field in some form or another um for for a long time and as you know, there's always been this like, oh, well, we can't anthropomorphize. And right. I find this so anthropocentric. Is that the word? Yeah. It's very irritating. And so I always tell people, well, I don't anthropomorphize animals. I zoomorphize people. We are animals. And to the extent that we are individuals and have personalities and thoughts, sure. desires, wants, needs, even ambitions, potentially, so do other animals. And and so I don't I didn't see prairie dogs as a collective. I had Christmas and I had Tinsel, her daughter, and I had Antonio and I had all of these individuals who collectively made up this little community mm-hmm. of interacting individuals. And then there was the coyotes who had their own routine and their own personalities and their own certain strategies. Some were really good at hunting. Some were really not so good. Some tripped and looked shocked. You know, some were surprised and irritated when they saw me because they didn't smell me or I was in a particular location and they had the same reaction that people have when, when you startle them, right? That look on their face of, you know, and then kind of angry, like, why, I didn't, why were you there? And it was kind of, a way of I, I could connect at this other level because they're so familiar. I can relate to it. And so I always try to share with people there are more similarities between us and other animals than there are differences. And mm-hmm. if you can embrace that, then I feel like 
you can protect things that you can relate to. We can't respect or protect things we can't relate to. And if we keep them as this other that's over here and separate in, in being and in feeling and in thinking and in just individuality, it allows us to keep perpetuating things that are morally and ethically not okay. And, and that sort of, you know, I wonder how much your experience and how you were shaped by this led you towards the, the advocacy and protection side that you have spent yeah. so much time. Um, you it know, was a big part on. of it. It was a big part of it. And I think, um, you know, we were, you're talking of course about your work with the prairie dogs. And I know that modern behaviorism uh, wanted to kind of strip away the commonalities that we were just talking about um, just to kind of like use uh, the quote unquote, you know, scientific methodology, um, you know, anthropomorphizing with anthropoid apes <laughs> seems to be pretty reasonable when it, when it comes to like, if, if you're going to do it, you know, makes right. sense, right? And doesn't their name literally mean person of the forest? Yes, exactly. So, you know, the Indonesians understand this from their, their naming orangutan, a person of the forest. Uh, you know, we're dealing with, with, with persons. And again, again, I've been a proponent of the, the Great Ape Project, um, the effort to again give rights, basic rights to the great apes. But, you know, there are those who find that this may be a slippery slope. Uh, you know, to the other species. And of course, I have no problem with that. I think we need to start somewhere. And for us to kind of get up, get our high horse of, of you know, being on the top of the, the heap, right? This kind of pinnacle of evolution, which sure. is a, a bunch of bunk anyway. Yes. Because evolution doesn't go to any peak. It's like a bush that's grown in every one of us that's <laughs> alive today is a success success story. Yes. Even, even the protozoans and the bacteria and the viruses. We're all success stories because we're still here. Correct. So there is no directionism to it. You know, it's just who's able to survive. And right now, of course, we humans are in the driver's seat and determining who is going to survive over the next few years. Because, you know, as we all know, our extreme behavior and what we do is driving uh you know, a lot of species to extinction. And, you know, we are poised to do the same to so many more and including, you know, ourselves. So absolutely, uh, you know, what, what we're doing, what I'm doing, and of course, you know, my connection with, with orangutans and my feelings about them helped to kind of shape the, the direction I took in creating an organization dedicated to help saving uh, orangutans, but again, it's much bigger than just orangutans. I like to let people know we've got to save human beings as well. And, you know, it starts, you know, deep inside of our, ourselves, apart from, you know, putting food on the table, you know, there's a great hunger inside of ourselves to find out, you know, why are we here? What are we doing? And, um, you know, having an organization as a platform for giving people an opportunity to do something of value to help maybe equilibrate the planet because we've skewed it in such a way because of our our economics, our system of commerce and capitalism has, has made the wealthy wealthier and the poor poorer. We know that we know that narrative. But you know, if we can help bring together peoples around the world and to get them to understand the value 
the intrinsic value of the natural world and to show them that we all are part of this and we can help support you know their education and their uh enlightenment and have them take the leadership on this too so it's not just the western you know viewpoint pushing itself on those other folks right it's them seeing this for what it is and then building it that's really what i want to do with this organization and at the same time look for really solutions to help ensure that orangutans and other biodiversity can survive in the short term because you know we're, we're talking 10 15 years of, of making a difference if we can you know turn around climate and you know deal with the carbon problems um certainly help ensure the survival of intact ecosystems which are, are being decompiled for for quick profits how do we do that well we have solutions and we're working on those and they're slow uh, to try to put into place. But, you know, we, we are doing that and we're going to continue doing that as long as we can. So this is this is really what I feel very strongly about. Well, so and I want to make sure the listeners know the name of the foundation is Orang Utan Republic Foundation. That's correct. And uh, I'm going to make sure that the link for, for the foundation is in the show notes. And, and I want to talk about you know, what some of those solutions are in a minute, but I, I'd like to kind of get a sense of what are some of the projects that the foundation is currently involved in and how can people who want to help, help? Sure. Well, we've got, we've got a number of projects going on right now. I mean, we've had our, our two signature programs um, operating for quite some time. Um, one, one is in the field, working with local conservation educators, because as I said before, this really should be a conversation that's being led by the local people, not being kind of pushed on them by well-intended Westerners, because we've done our duty and we've done a poor job of it in many parts of the world over the years. But by providing them with with funding, providing them with guidance, um, providing them with feedback, and letting them build the programs and getting that, those programs out to the field at the interface where orangutans and wildlife live um, you know, side by side with local people and, and educating the local people not to kill or to harass or to invade into the um, protected areas is very, very important. It's, ha it's important in Sumatra. It's important in places like in Africa, in South America. So it's really a, a global issue, but we're doing it uh, in Sumatra right now with our program, uh, the Community Education and Conservation Program. And we, we're helping to help stand up uh, a young group of conservation educators uh, called the, um, they formed a group called the Green Sumatra uh, Protection Foundation. Um, and so what we're doing is helping them uh, with the funding and helping them find funds, but also teaching them how to Rent, write grants and go out and get the funding themselves. So it's like not just giving the person the fish, but teaching them how to fish. You know that? that Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so that's one of the programs. And people can help by supporting our, our appeal for the, for supporting this particular program. And right now, of course, they're, they're, they've got COVID protocols in place when they go out and when they work with the local people. They're distributing masks and helping with that side of it as well. But, you know, they do tree planting. Uh, they're, they're 
they're doing development, uh, what they call um, demonstration plots, where they teach people how to do organic farming, rather than going out and planting on, you know, in areas in the national park, we want them to do better on their own plot of land and teaching them how to get, get away from the chemicals and the pesticides that are poisoning them and, and giving them those alternatives that are working so well in places around the world. When we look at permaculture and other forms of organic farming, we're, we're, we're putting that into place as well through this program. So it's you know teaching them how to reduce the conflict, you know not to hurt the animals when they shoo them away from their garden using things like carbide cannons that make a big boom uh, instead of using pellets guns that blind them and hurt them. So it's doing that direct intervention in those villages where we're finding high conflict. So that's one program. The other one that I'm really proud of is our orangutan caring uh, scholarship program, which we're now in the 14th or 15th year. Uh, we started with a single scholarship, a multi-year scholarship. This is for students who are living in those provinces of Indonesia where orangutans live in the wild. So we started in North Sumatra where the Gunung Lusser uh, ecosystem is, uh, or the, the Lusser ecosystem. And then we moved up to Aceh, uh, where many, most of the orangutans are actually found uh, outside of, of protected areas. And so what we want to do is build a cadre of, of graduates who understand the orangutan, who've done their, their studies on orangutans, because they do a their thesis on an aspect of orangutans in the either programs of biology, forestry, or veterinary science. And we work with partner groups who are already in place, who help administer the program, working with the local universities. So there is this kind of, they have an understanding, a memorandum of understanding with the university. And of course, they want more scholarships, but we can only do what we can do. And this year, we're giving out 24 new scholarships. And over the 14 or 15 years, we've done 192 of these. Wow. And 118 students have already graduated. And many of them are going into, you know, academia. They're going into the other uh, non-government groups doing conservation. Some are going into government. And over time, we're hoping that many will, will become great influencers at the government level with a heart for orangutans. So this is kind of planting seeds and building for the future. So I'm yeah. really, really happy about that. We're starting our, our next group will be in East Kalimantan, East Borneo this year. We're starting with two fresh scholarships and we're working with a group called Center for Orangutan Protection. These are partners we've worked with in other projects before and we're really really proud that we're starting and finishing up the whole constellation of provinces that have programs, the Orangutan Caring Scholarship. So we have them in, I mentioned North Sumatra, Aceh, West Kalimantan. We work there with um, Yesan Palung, which is a, a program uh, that is a offshoot of the Gunung Palung uh, Orangutan Conservation Program, uh, a really wonderful long-term study by Cheryl Knott, who's been studying orangutans in the Gunung Palung uh, National Park. And so working with that particular team there with the scholarships, the students there go to a place called uh, Pontianak, it's the capital of West Kalimantan at the University of Pontianak in, in the forestry department or the biology department. Then we're working with a, another wonderful group called the Borneo Nature Foundation. They work in central Kalimantan in Palankaraya, that's, that's the capital there. 
and the students there also are in, in forestry and biology, uh, biology, and they're going to the University of Palankaraya. So we're, we're giving out new scholarships there this year. And like I said before, in East Kalimantan, starting up for the first time this year with the Center for Orangutan Protection. So you've noticed I've mentioned a lot of different groups. Yes. We partner with other groups. It's very important not to think of yourself as an island or a silo, but you see you're actually part of a hub of other organizations doing wonderful work for orangutans. And each one of them does work in the conservation arena, but they also have education branches. So we're partnering with them to, to actually build up this, this scholarship program and, and to try to broaden it and to deepen it over time. And very, very proud of this program. We've had to do it remotely again during COVID. So we do, you know, sometimes I actually help out with evaluating the students when they give their interviews, when they're applying and they're doing their the competition for these scholarships. So these are competitive scholarships. And each one for four years, over the last several years, we've, we've kind of pegged them at $1,500 for the four-year scholarship. For the veterinary scholarship, it's $2,000 for five years. Okay. And that's, a, that's such a small sum of money when you think about it, right? Yes, it is. It's, uh, it's... Compared to what we have to pay here. But this covers their tuition for their write-ups and for, um, you know, it, it's not a full, full ride scholarship. So many of them stay at home. Many of them, of course, uh, get other forms of support. But what we wanted to do is to broaden it and give as many as we could with the limited resources that we have. And we, we appeal to the public for this one as well. We have now this new program called Sponsor or, or yeah, Sponsor a Student. And you can go to our website and you can help out by sponsoring one of the six students that we have as representatives for all the students. So the idea, it's kind of like, you know, adopt an orangutan. And -hmm. you've seen the adopt the orangutan programs. Well, I felt it was not appropriate for us to do that like so many other groups have done because we're not we're not sponsoring um, orangutan rehabilitation any longer. We're working with people to educate them, to educate them, to reduce the problem and to enhance education about the species and their plight. So what we do is we have this program, but we want to know people. We want, we want people to understand that we're, we're helping people to help the orangutans and that um, these students work with the groups and they learn about the orangutans and they um, form a, a love for the orangutans during their matriculation. So this is, this is, I think the strength of this program. I couldn't agree more. I think it's so important that what you're doing, it, it, because so many, and I, and of course, I'm, everybody has a, a, a focus that they want to focus on. But I think that the what you mentioned about the sort of Western perspective of, oh, we're going to come in and we want you to stop doing this. And, and yet there there's never a way to address the real problems that people right. living in that area are experiencing and providing solutions for how they can co- learn to coexist peacefully, um, you know, with the environment around them. So meeting their needs while still allowing the other species to have their needs. This exactly. is right. And so this is a common problem. And, and I think that it's so wonderful that your organization has not only zeroed in on that, but then again, I think that, 
sure, Western trained scientists are great, but I think that cultivating uh, students and professionals from that from that place who are are part of that local community is such a stronger way to have an impact than an outsider coming in yeah. and trying to tell you how to be and what to do and why it matters and 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 you have no concept of what their life really is and so i, I think it's really important to respect the culture that you're working in and I think that is something we're we're slowly understanding and and accommodating to because as as foreigners going into a place like Indonesia, it's it's really easy to look at problems and wag our fingers at them. But quite frankly, we have very little moral authority to do that any longer. And I think it's it's high time that we meet them halfway. And instead of um, uh, insulting them, we consult with them, you know, and it's important to respect their issues and their problems and see it as a, as an evolutionary step that they're taking on their own and not something we should be forcing on them. So for example, the issue of palm oil, this is a big one. Yeah. The West, the West has really inflamed it. And, and of course, I'm, I'll be the first to tell you that it's done some major, major damage to the ecosystems that were formerly forests. And that, of course, you can't ever go back. Uh, right now, you've got so many plantations out there, a lot of monoculture. But I, I don't want to um, inflame the government. I'm not going to criticize them for wanting to try to feed their people or to develop economies that will, uh, you know, hopefully be sustainable. Of course, this is what they say. And I support the the movement of all governments to sustainably care for their people. But we also have to remember that by destroying the wild areas, we're, we're actually destroying the future for everything on planet Earth. And we've got to um, maintain enough biodiversity and enough ecosystem services to sustain human beings as well as the animals that live there. So that is a delicate story. It, it, it's scientific. Of course, we need to do the studies to show it. But it also requires diplomacy and the kind of uh, proper uh, narrative and dialogue so that we can actually come to some uh, actions that we can take that will, will help make the difference. Um, because there's so much um, NATO in this world. You've heard the term NATO? Not, not the organization across the ocean. It's no action, talk only. So there's a lot of talk about doing things, but there's the action that we take is harder to do. And to do it right takes a lot longer. Uh, people wanna get quick solutions. So they say, oh, let's boycott or let's, let's, you know, whatever. But that may not be the answer. The answer may be finding ways to make a commodity less harmful to the wildlife through responsible commerce. So I ask people to shop as smart shoppers, whether it's for products that have palm oil or wood that is, you know, certified sustainable mm -hmm. uh, or whatever it is. This is something we all can do just as consumers, because we're making a big impact by buying things that are too cheap. But the cheapness is really not born in the product. We're just kicking the, the true cost 
and and you know down to another generation or we're kicking that can down the road for the next generation to clean up and and this is something that palm oil is is obviously part of that dialogue i i appreciate what you're saying because there's a bit of a I'm going to use the word hypocrisy um, from the Western perspective of, you know, shaming other other countries. And and yet sometimes I ask my students like, hey, you know, um, next time you go shopping, take a look at the labels. So so for all the passion you feel about how this is horrible, how much are you contributing? Because Mm -hmm. you don't take the time to look and make decisions um, that will allow for increased sort of development of more sustainable practices without necessarily eliminating the entire commodity. Exactly. Right. And so they're often like, oh, I uh, what? And and like, well, where do the things come from? Well, I can't afford to do something. Well, you might if you have less, right, consume less and you can make those choices. And sometimes we don't know there isn't a transparency about where things come from. I think there was recently, you know, a few months ago, uh, it, it exposed how some macaques were being, you know, were chained and were being used to harvest coconuts. And yep. right. And and, it, and it immediately you saw some corporations. And this was very interesting to me because I didn't normally see that reaction. Say we're going to only source from sustainable sources that don't abuse wildlife. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's great, right? Don't sh- get rid of the product completely, but shift to, but it might mean there's less available. It might mean that it costs more. Right. And I think certain cultures have re- become so reliant on cheap product that this is the biggest hurdle. Where, where that sticker shock of this is the true price of this. And we also have 7 billion, 8 billion people on the planet, mm-hmm. which means that this it's things that can be sustainably developed are not scalable. And so I don't know how we overcome that problem, the scalability problem. Well, it is very complicated, as you, as you pointed out. And I don't think... Um, a lot of people dig deep enough or spend the time to understand the nuances to um, fully grasp the totality. You know, I mean, any commodity, it's it's connected to so many other things. I mean, you've got, of course, the local people at the producer level. In Indonesia, palm oil really takes care of millions and millions of people who are working to grow it. Um, and mo- a large percentage of it, like 40 some odd percent are smallholders, people who own only 20 hectares of land and they're growing it on their own property. So when we hear about, uh, of course, the monoculture plantations as being the big villains, you know, we forget that there are others who are growing it and trying to feed their families. Um, And of course, there's a lot of, again, more nuanced issues here than most people Uh, have a time to go dig deep into and to understand. But if they did, they would realize that it's not a black and white issue, as as, is the case in so many things in our world. So again, 
tuning out of you know the, the titillating things that take up most of our time and maybe reading a, a, a greater, uh, say an article that goes into depth uh, about these issues would be something I would encourage you know most people to do uh, that, that just really don't understand is that they should dig deeper and understand. Uh, and also traveling. If you could travel to a place and go on an eco tour and see what's happening, you see not just the animals that you came to see, but you see the local people, you mm -hmm. see how they live their lives, you understand, again, you'll get to understand those nuances in a, in a more visceral way. Right. And I think that's always the best way to learn. But, you know, it's limited, you know, in terms of how many people can do this. And um, frankly, not it, it doesn't scale up, nor should it, because if it does, it's no longer ecotourism. <laughs> sure. Now, I will say that you, you, you know, the person to go with would be you and your wife um, because of the long history and relationships that you have with people there. And, and people can go to the foundation website site and also find information about this but we have to save a slot for me for next year so yeah. so, so you got to reserve a slot yeah. um and you know i've i've appreciated so much about our conversation and getting to learn from you and and hear about these amazing experiences and your passion for orangutans and for the people that call this area of the world home and i guess if it would be okay to kind of close with something that we were talking about a little bit before we started, which is, you know, what is the consequence if we fail to respect and acknowledge our connection with other species and with nature and these services? What is, what is the consequence for us sort of socially, psychologically, you know, I don't know, spiritually, not just our physical well-being. We focus a lot on you know, whether we can grow enough food or have enough water to drink. But I think my personal feeling is that there's a deeper consequence for how we relate to each other um, based on how we relate to the rest of the natural world. I don't know. No, I think you're you're absolutely right. It's 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 part of the conversation that frankly, most people don't dive into because it is so personal. I mean, we are connected to this planet. We are animals that uh, resonate with um, being outside as we evolved. You know, we didn't, you know, evolve in homes that have central heating and all of the wonderful things that we have. We have to remember to get outside and connect with nature and realize that there's a, uh, there are frequencies of connectivity that we just can't tap into because we just don't know how to do it yet. Or some people don't know how to do it. Most of the, I think we're so tuned into our devices, our digital devices, we, we, we mask out a lot of the other um, connections that we have if we just quietly reflect in a natural place. And of course, this is something that psychologists have talked about as being a therapy for humanity, getting out to those wild places. And what a shame if we lose more and more of that just for technology's sake, just to build more places and malls and 
other kinds of human constructed uh, edifices to our our superior brain. You know, we could we could do that and then decompile more of nature, but we would lose so much, and we'd lose that connection with the other life forms out there that we share so much with. I think it would be a real mistake and a travesty. Uh, it would be, a, a, I think, a global disaster if that was to be the case. And so we need organizations that are pushing back and advocating for the wild places and for those animals who can't talk for themselves. And I think this is, this is the strength in the community that we have. Um, the partners that I have and the people who I meet is, you know, this strength in unity that we're doing the right thing. And we're tapping into that deeper aspect of who we are as, as biological creatures on planet Earth, the only one. And as Earth Day approaches next week, it's a great time for everybody to kind of reflect on this because we've lost so much in the last year. You know, we lost so much time and human life. And, you know, we know that even even the, the, the orangutans and other great apes can, can get COVID. And there's all other diseases out there that we have to be mindful of that will also come into our lives if we don't protect and secure these wild places and keep the vectors in place in those forests. Oh my gosh. So it, yeah. It's all there. It's all right in front of us right now. We got to be present to it. We've got to think about it. And I really feel that our work is cut out for us for the years to come, but this is a great time to reflect on it this week coming up Earth Day. And thank you for everything that you're doing, um, not just with your organization, but with all the partners to create change, to try to push back against this sort of continual march forward to self-destruction, really. Um, and in the process, the potential loss of so much, so many individuals Mm -hmm. of different species who have their own personalities and their own lives that they're trying to live and their own sort of, you know, I was watching two sandhill cranes today <laughs> and they're interesting birds and they're quite vocal. Um, mm -hmm. The couple like to have their morning song, let's say, and it's wonderful and it's spectacular, but I was watching one of them and it must have had something kind of bothering it <laughs> right around its eye. And, and it just is, and that's why I would also encourage listeners to just go watch, sit somewhere and watch other animals and you'll see something kind of that you can say, oh, well, that's got to be annoying. Something's bothering it. It kept, it was trying to eat, but then it kept scratching. It's right above its eye and then go a little bit further and then stop and scratch again. And, and I just thought, gosh, you know, that must be so irritating. You can't focus on getting breakfast. You have an itch that just mm. won't go away. I hope it's okay. Maybe it's a mite. I don't know, but it was just this sort of ordinary behavior, scratching an itch that, you know, to peek into like a voyeur to this, this crane going about its day, having to scratch an itch just made me, that's how our, all our lives are. We go about our day. Sometimes we have to scratch an itch. There's nothing terribly different between me and that sandhill crane. And so I hope that it's not just, um, you know, it's not just 
another Earth Day. It's, I think, a turning point kind of Earth Day for us with everything that we've all experienced with this pandemic. And something you said that is so true is to keep those vectors in place because when you reduce the biodiversity, some of those those uh, ho- those viruses and diseases there suddenly need a new host because you've taken away the one they've co-evolved with. Mm-hmm. And like everything else, they will try to find a way to survive. Very true. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, anytime. I, I, I love talking this way. It's, uh, it gives me a chance to reflect on some things that have been, I've been pondering about for many, many years and um, hope you have a wonderful Earth Day. Yes, you too. And remember, there's hope. Um, Jane Goodall taught me that, and she's a good friend, and she wrote a book about hope. And I think that even with all the terrible, crazy things going on, that as long as we continue having hope and we continue working and, and moving in the right direction, that you know things will improve. So um, yes. hopefully we can keep doing that. Thank you. Thank you. Listen, everyone. It's Earth Day tomorrow. And like Gary suggested, let's reflect, let's investigate, and let's read so that we understand the nuances of how aspects of our lives are really negatively impacting other species, their habitats, and the earth that we all call home. Figure out what you can do to help. And one thing you can do is support the Orangutan Republic Foundation by sponsoring the education of a local student. You can go to the website, O-R-A-N-G-U-T-A-N-R-E-P-U-B-L-I-K.org. That's the orangutanrepublic.org and learn about their different programs, including supporting local voices in the community where people and orangutans live side by side. Donate if you can, or sign up for an eco-tour. Thanks for listening, and please, if you're enjoying the show, follow and share so other people can find it too. Happy Earth Day.